There's a battle going on for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. On Ladies Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. Ladies Can We Talk starts now. Good evening and welcome to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Addis. I'm so happy you've tuned in tonight. I want to jump right in, of course, and talk about what happened in Orlando, Florida today. As everyone in America awakened on Sunday morning and almost everyone heard nearly immediately that there had been a terrorist attack in a, um, a nightclub in Orlando, a gay nightclub in Orlando. And in this segment of my show, I always try, I do my Speak Up for America segment. It's a special segment dedicated to one issue. And tonight I want to talk about what happened in Orlando and what it means for America's future and what it means for our ability to protect ourselves. Let's start with just a few facts. The shooter in the case in Orlando was a gentleman named Omar Sadaki Mateen. Uh, There were 50 people killed in this gay nightclub, 53 injured, many very seriously. And, you know, we had a lot of commentators and politicians saying our thoughts, our hearts, our prayers go out. And, of course, they do. But, folks, it's not enough. This killer called 911 as he was entering the nightclub, swore allegiance to ISIS. He yelled Allahu Akbar as he fired on innocent people getting together, enjoying some time out on their um and their Saturday night. It was very, very, it was early morning Sunday, actually. And yet, so it was clearly an Islamic terror attack. It was an Islamic a terror attack. And yet when President Obama addressed the nation today, eloquent as his words always are, he just referred to it as a murder. He talked about guns, the need to control guns. He talked about hate being a bad thing. No reference to Islam Muslims or jihad. He did call it an act of terror. Now, the FBI has been following this guy, this uh, one who did the shooting. He, he's been on their list. They were aware. FBI was aware that Omar Qaddafi Mateen, Sadaki Mateen, had been connected with ISIS. They knew that they were watching him. But a few more facts I want to share with you before I do my points to keep in mind and how to talk about this and how important it is to talk about it. There was, just a few years ago in 2013, a speech in Florida at the Husseini Islamic Center in Sanford, Florida, uh, by a prominent Muslim sheikh, Sheikh Farak Sekalashafar. Sorry, a long last name. I hope that's right. But he spoke at a mosque, a, a, a very large event in 2013, in which he told Florida Muslims, killing of homosexuals is the compassionate thing to do. He specifically said regarding gays, death is the sentence. We know there's nothing to be embarrassed about this. Death is the sentence. We have to stop that compassion. We have to have that compassion for people with homosexuals. It's the same out of compassion. Let's get rid of them now. So this is a Muslim sheikh speaking in Florida. I don't know if this young man, Omar Mateen, was at that talk. But the other the things I want to be sure we talk about tonight about this attack in Florida, we have... We have embraced policies in America, in our government, that make America a more dangerous place. ISIS has claimed responsibility for this shooting. The FBI was aware of the uh, connection between Mateen and the and, and ISIS, but hadn't moved in on him, hadn't done anything, still just kind of watching him. And there's a couple of things that's important to keep in mind about Islam. Islam itself has as a teaching in fact i will quote you from the quran seven 
Quran 7, 80 to 84, is interpreted by Muslims around the world to mean that people who are homosexuals must be stoned to death. The actual language is, for ye practice your lusts on men in preference to women, ye are indeed a people transgressing beyond bounds, and we rained down on them a shower of brimstone, stones. This passage and others in the Quran directly authorize, legitimize the attack on these the Florida nightclub people because within Islam itself, it is teaching to kill homosexuals. Now, obviously, the problem I want to get at is the problem isn't every Muslim in the world, but the problem is Islam's teachings itself. It's what Islam teaches. And we've talked about in the show before, there are, uh, in fact, we can go to the Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page. I'll put it up again dozens of quotes by Islamic leaders around the world. The Grand Mufti of Egypt, the highest Muslim religious religious authority in the world, said Muslims must kill non-believers wherever they are unless they convert to Islam. These are not random isolated statements. These are statements by leaders in the world of Islam, the president of Al-Azhar University, the Pakistan, the founder of the Pakistani political party, uh, the chief justice of Saudi Arabia, Arabia. You can find quote after quote after quote where violence on behalf of Islam is justified by the teachings of Islam itself. Yet in America, in the year 2011, President Obama pulled references to Islam and anything relating to jihad, Sharia, the caliphate, all references to Islam were removed from the terror training manuals. This is according to Deputy U.S. Attorney James Cole. In 2011, all references to Islam were removed from the training materials used for law enforcement and national security communities because Muslim activist groups in America complained about them. You got to think about that because Muslims complain we stop talking about. It. So here's your talking points. We need to return to a willingness to be honest. President Obama needs to call this Islamic terrorism, not just an act of terror. We have to be willing to recognize as a society, Islam is at war against the West. And our job is to defend ourselves, including how we shape our immigration policies in America. This is Debbie Georgias. Right after our break, we have on an author, Virginia Prodan, the coolest book I've read in years. So don't go away. We'll talk about it after the break. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Addis on this stormy, rainy evening in Dallas, Texas. And I am just so excited for our next segment. We have a guest in the studio with us named Virginia Prodan. She is the author of Saving My Assassin. And let me tell you, do you ever read novels like true stories about people? And then you think, I can't believe the person, someone lived this life. Well, this is Virginia Prodan's book. It's actually her life story. And it reads like a spy thriller, like a, I can't even begin to describe it. You can't put it down when you start reading it. So, Virginia, welcome in the studio. Thank you for having me, Debbie. I am so appreciate you being here. And in a nutshell, I'll tell our listeners, Virginia grew up in Romania, and she grew up under the most brutal dictator in all of the communist world, Nicolae Ceausescu. And I didn't, if I didn't say it right, don't correct me because that's the best I can do. But anyway, he was the most brutal, repressive dictator. And Virginia lived this astounding life where she worked as a lawyer defending Christians who, in communist countries, they're just not going to let you be, have your churches. So 
I just want to have you talk about your book. I just want to start out with, you know, I know you grew up in Romania. You had your long, young adult life working as an attorney representing the churches at a time when really the communist government of Romania under Ceausescu was trying to shut down churches and crush religious freedom. So I've heard you say many times communists don't, they outlaw religion because they insist that the government is God. And I never really knew what you meant by that until I read this book. But can you just talk about that idea? Why do communists fight so hard to shut down religion? Well, one of the reasons the communists will do that is because, as we know as Christians, we believe that our rights and freedom come from God and not from any government. Um, The communist and socialist system are based on control and fear and manipulation. So in order for uh, the government to control people, they have to uh, fight against religion because the government, no matter if it's socialist or communist, will replace, will deny our God and our Bible and will replace our God with the socialist leader in power and our Bible with their manifesto and will make out of people slaves. That's what Ceausescu believed, that we are slaves, that we are owned by him, that uh, our resources will depend on him if we uh, will um, worship him as, as a leader, as a god, and we should be loyal to him. And if you're not loyal, that you will be put in jail, killed, or just disappear overnight. Well, you mentioned several times in the book, people just disappearing, someone who had somehow crossed Ceausescu just walking home from work one day or from the store and just never seen again. It's the it's the scariest thing. And, you know, you just I, I had the thought many times reading your book, we don't appreciate the freedom of America enough. We just don't. Well, I also want to ask you, I, I was interested in your description about schools in communist countries and how, you know, in Romania, the communist party's mission is kind of taught in the schools as forced into students so it sounds like they're get, kids get indoctrinated in school is that right is that what they're really doing yes first of all the communist um, system or socialists will replace the capitalist and the freedom of you know education with a strict control uh, socialist um, control government uh, school system and according to that uh, system. If you are loyal to a government, you will continue your education. But if you are not loyal, no matter how smart you are, uh, you're not going to be able to continue your education. The role of uh, a teacher in, in socialism or communist system is to train the students in that ideology and watch and report the parents if they will ever dare to uh, complain about. And parents have no no control over their children's education or voice. Wow. And it's going to happen here. We have we have uh, lots of things going on here in America with Common Core, where um, at this level, where you can look on website and you can see that uh, some of directives from our own government now are the way the teachers should teach from kindergarten students. Uh, about gender and other things, and if the parents will dare to complain, then they they will be in trouble. So it ha- is happening here in in America, not only in Romania. Wow, we hey Virginia, so great to have you on the show. Thank you. Um, 
you know, here in America, we we have certain concerns about our churches and what our pastors are going to be made to do in the future. Um, you know, certain things with uh, within the gay community and, and, you know, what pastors can or cannot do. And so um, since you worked as a lawyer in Romania defending churches and individual pastors and people, um, what kinds of crimes could Romanians be charged with in relation to practicing their own religion? Okay, that's a great question. By the way, I work as a lawyer here defending freedom too. Uh, but uh, under, under communists in Romania, first of all, we have to understand that socialists and communists works on lies, on deception, on um, parts of the truth, not truth. And uh, let me give you an example. Um, in communist Romania, in order for our government to receive the most nation uh, favor status from United States of America, United States of America made it clear to our government and uh, the dictator that human or religious rights have to be respected. But guess what? Not any media was allowed to present that part of the story. So we did not know about this. So what the government will do, first of all, United States of America ask the government to allow uh, in Romania to come, uh, you know, churches and missionaries and everything free and never to be harassed. And the government said yes, because they wanted to receive that benefit from United States. But inside of Romania, Ceausescu was doing exactly the opposite. Even though the Bibles were coming to churches in Romania, when the people will take a Bible at home, uh, they will be arrested for having a Bible. For if they will transport the Bibles from one church to another for vacation Bible school or other events, they will be arrested. The worst situation was for my clients and including myself was when secret police will say, for, for the fact that you have a Bible, and obviously all our Bibles were printed in the United States. The communist doesn't print a Bible. They said we can charge you with being a spy for United States and kill you the next day. But what I did is I used the laws in Romania. Before communists came to power, we had laws that protected freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Ceausescu was smart enough and manipulating not to touch those laws. So those laws were still in power in Romania. But what he did, he threatened every single lawyer, including myself, that if I used the law, I, in fact, I became, according to him, a dissident. So I will be um, arrested and, you know, and he did that. But what I believe is the role of a lawyer is to use the laws in his country or her country and protect, you know, churches. And also what what he did and what kind of crimes the churches were under sometimes or threatened to was churches will need some repairs. So the, they will apply for the government for permission and Ceausescu's government will deny them for years and years and years. And then they will say, oh, the church is under disrepair, so we have to demolish the church. So we, using all those laws, I save uh, churches because the government was uh, 
obligated to uh, provide those uh, approval, um, release the Christians that were in jail for having a Bible, or some of them were in jail because they watched the Jesus movie in their own home, and they had to be released. But what I didn't realize, it came later, that all those cases, I won all those cases, but surely and, um, I, I became part of the wrath of um, Ceausescu and, and his, his government. We're speaking tonight with Virginia Prodan, who is the author of Saving My Assassin. And we have a break coming up in a moment, but we're talking about what it was like to actually grow up in and live in and practice law in communist Romania under a communist dictator who was the most brutal in the whole communist system. One thing I was going to throw in, we have 20 seconds here, but Virginia wanted to go to law school there. And the rules they had to permit you to go to law school, you had to sign something saying, Neither the applicant nor parents had ever expressed a critical attitude toward communism. The applicant's parents had never questioned or arrested or never been arrested by the communists. And the applicant's parents were not Christians. This is very overt religious repression. After a break, we're going to talk a little bit more about some unbelievable developments in Virginia's life. Come back after the break. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. I meant to say before our break that um, it's great. My leading ladies tonight have joined me. Lori Medina, Mari Sullivan are here. And we are speaking with the author of Saving My Assassin, Virginia Prodan, a book you simply must read. Virginia, I'm so curious to find out how did the government create a culture that would encourage people or force people to turn their friends and family in? Uh, it's a very important question, and it's happening now in, in America, and people are not even aware of that. Uh, socialist is against guns. Socialist wants to control us and wants to disarm its, his people and uh, in order to control. After socialists took power in Romania, immediately established uh, gun control. Not only that, but it created a very special police system called Securitate. You heard me talking about them. The role of the Securitate, which is not the CIA role. No, do not compare that. It's a different kind of police system that the role was to control and silence everyone, including media. Those uh, Securitate people were dictators, loyalists were above the law, were very cruel, cruel people. They will kill people in a second, in a minute. That was their, their, uh, their role. They also recruited even um, civilian informants. After revolution, we um, realized that the youngest informant in Romania was eight years old. So with, with Securitate, Ceausescu consolidated his power and no free election. We had no free election during his lifetime. After he consolidated, disarmed people and controlled the entire uh, population, no dissident voice was heard. This is why, as a woman, I didn't have a voice they considered. So they were surprised about, about that. They also labeled the communist government, labeled Every question that we have or suspicion about the government activity as an anti-government uh, statement. Yeah. Yes, and for that reason, um, 
everybody that was from the communist government, loyal to the government, uh, or uh, informant for the Securitate, could turn us in, saying that we said we had an anti-government statement, we, a neighbor, classmate, even family member, will turn us in. It's only by control, and that's in many ways, if you see around, it's not maybe like in Romania, but if we don't fight, it's going to happen here. It's going to be here in America. It's such a reign of terror kind of thing when you just think you're, you know, it is, um, well, it's like the terrorists trying to do to America today. You're just, you're going to submit. We're going to shut you down. And so it's easier to cower in your home than stand up. Well, I want to well, ask you that's th- one thing is in America, when you see those things that when somebody said what has in his mind or her mind, everybody or people, um, liberals will say, you have to apologize or you, you have to lose your, your job or something like this. What do you think is next? You as as a parent or you as a child, you have to report what's going on in your home. And if we go on that slippery slope, it's going to happen here yeah. sooner or later. People use the expression political correctness and when they say, well, you're not supposed to say that. But it begins to have the same impact. You don't say what you think. I, I just have to ask you because this is such an important election year in America. And we have Bernie Sanders. Astonishingly, uh, he's apparently going not going to succeed in getting the Democrat nomination for president. But he's an open socialist. And the American left is really very far down the path of socialism. And I know Romania was communist. But, you know, Lenin said socialism is communism. It's just mm-hmm. on the path. So Does it alarm you when you look around America and see how popular socialist ideas are? Yes. Um, First of all, I believe that we have opportunities. Young people can look uh, on Internet, can learn about socialists, can even go to different countries. But what um, absolutely um, it's important for people to notice is there is a new pathway in America. And that is political correctness, fear of men and disregard of God. And those three elements are absolutely elements that will destroy America. Same again. I am saying political correctness, fear of men, and disregard of God. Those are the, the three elements of the new pathway that will, and they are weakening America from within. I love that you're saying that. I just, I, I am... I find it breathtaking that, that Bernie Sanders has a serious political audience if people only knew what socialism leading to communism means. And actually, that brings to my next question, Virginia. Um, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, years ago, it seemed like you would see small, very tiny, small incremental things happen regarding our liberties here in America. And it just seems like in the last few years, it's just the ball is rolling faster and faster and faster. And I guess my question is, Virginia, can you compare or contrast um, how things happened, how liberties were taken away, the brutalization of the dictatorship uh, that you experienced in Romania, compare that to what we are seeing happen here in America? Well, um, in many ways, uh, in, in Romania, we had the Russian camps with their boots and controlling us, and then the government consolidated its power. In the United States, we have the government doing and, or the president doing executive orders 
violating our um, religious rights or our rights. I want to mention that there are several, several, several things that we have to be aware they concern me a lot. We experience uh, in America an increasingly hostile attitude from our government and even frequent attacks on our rights, including our religious rights. And I will just enumerate a few of them. The list is just unbelievable. I will enumerate. It's from prayer in school, you know, kids cannot pray in school, to pastor being asked here in Texas, being asked to provide, uh, you know, copies of their church sermon. Uh, from Christian-owned businesses that are being destroyed by the government, uh, the, and the only reason is, is because the owner wanted and continue, insisted to practice their faith. And we have several examples. I will just enumerate some of them. A 70-years-old florist from Washington State, a baker in Colorado, a New Mexico photographer, a Kentucky t-shirt maker, a prayer breakfast cancellation for Lieutenant General Retired Jerry Boykin, and a true American hero. And just a few days ago, a public school in California ordered a seven-year-old boy to stop handling Bible verses during lunch break and dispatch a deputy sheriff to child's home to enforce their illegal oh directives. And the list can go on and on. And everything is here, happening here in America. And it's time for us to be aware and not to say anymore, oh, it will never happen here because it's happening right here. And we have to stand up for our rights and, and do what it takes for us to protect them. Absolutely. We have a little less than two minutes in this segment, and I want to ask you probably the most important question. For our listeners, I'll tell you, we're speaking with Virginia Prodan, the author of Saving My Assassin, you were literally, I just finished reading this book yesterday. It actually made me cry. But um, you were literally punched, abused, threatened with death, followed on the street throughout the day, held under house arrest with your children, and even offered the wealthy life of the communist leaders, like Nikolai Ceausescu, by his dreaded, uh, can I ever say that word, Securitat police force. All they wanted was for you to stop your work as a lawyer representing churches and religious people. That's all they wanted from you. What gave you courage to keep on working? My entire life, I live in communist uh, Romania, and I, I call a communist a prison land, and I look in the lie land. I, I look all my life for the truth, and that was the reason why I went to law school, but I realized that the truth is not in the law books, and finally, I found the truth in the pages of the most forbidden book in all communist Romania, the Bible, and that day when I found the truth, I received the divine um, uh, appointment to uh, different churches and Christians. And that gave me the strength I knew be, beyond uh, a shadow of a doubt that that was God's appointment, that he gave me that job. He was with me. He was around me. He was fighting for me. So in faith and with God's power, I acted and I won. Because our rights and our freedom come from God. And it's so true. I am a true example and, and a living uh, example that dictator is dead and I'm alive. 
So <laughs> what can you say more than that? Amen. <laughs> Amen. That's right. We're speaking with Virginia Prodan, author of Saving My Assassin. And I thank you so much for coming in the studio tonight. We're going to go off to a break. But when you come back, we come back. I want to tell you what's happening at Stanford and talk about the Stanford rape case. There are so many ramifications for our society out of this case. We'll talk about it right after the break. Don't go away. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgettis. I want to thank again our guest in the last half an hour, the author, Virginia Prodan, of the book Saving My Assassin. It's not only a fabulous read and a gripping read, but it's also something if you do purchase a copy, at, and you can get them on Amazon, you can get them at any bookstore and the major bookstores, and I urge you, buy three while you're there and give two to um, some young people who maybe need to have their eyes opened about the evils of socialism because I think they think they're getting um, a great deal and getting things for free, but um, they're not. Uh, and so this is just a really important um, message. Anyway, what I want to talk about in this segment is a tender topic. And, um, you know, this show is always about my Ladies Can We Talk show, which I just love, love, love doing. It's always about the idea of embracing and trying to protect the exceptional identity of America to... Um, to really talk through and think through what makes America exceptional and great so that we can keep it that way. And um, we don't always have every topic doesn't have to be politics. Sometimes it's culture, but it has to do again with this exceptional identity of America. So um, I wanted to start by, by recounting what happened in this case in Stanford. Um, you know, Stanford is California University, and there was a, uh, in January of 2015, there was an incident um, that um, that was involved uh, a party, um, a, a party where um, I guess a lot of people got very, very drunk. But in, in this January of 2015, this incident involved a, a Stanford student, a first year, a freshman boy, a young man named Brock Turner, and um, a young girl who actually wasn't a Stanford student. She was the older sister of a Stanford student, but she d- chose to attend a party. And at this party, um, they, there was a lot of alcohol flowing. And, um, the next, this young girl had testified in the trial that came out that, um, she recalled going to the party. And the next thing she recalled was waking up in the emergency room the next day. And what the short story, what occurred was that she met up with this young man at the party and, um, some witnesses testified they were dancing together. They were, uh, slobber kissing or whatever word you would use, but they became very, um, and, and the girl at the, this incident, um, evolved. The girl was found at the time to be three times the legal limit in terms of alcohol in your blood. So very, very inebriated. The boy was two times the, the, um, the, uh, permissible level, you know, that uh, alcohol level. So they both had a lot to drink that night. This young man named Brock Turner ended up being um, prosecuted for what occurred between these two and found guilty, very recently found guilty of three felonies, assault with intent to commit rape of an intoxicated woman, sexual penetration with a foreign object of an intoxicated person, and sexual penetration with a foreign object of an unconscious person. And the reason I'm telling you about this story is the young man and young woman end up being in a party together 
then out in the relative open on campus behind some kind of recycling bin or something. I mean, they're out on campus in public and two Stanford grad students rode by on their bicycle, was were watching, it appeared to be these people engaged in intimacy out in the open in public and realized that the woman didn't appear to be moving. And so um, they stopped and then got off their bikes. And as they approached them, the young man ran off and they tackled him and caught him. And this was this man, Brock Turner. So he was, um, he was, as I say, he was a freshman. He was actually a uh, star swimmer. He was on a a swim, you know, one of these scholarships they have for uh, athletes. He was good enough to have been considered for the Olympics. His dream was to become an Olympic swimmer and his dream was to ultimately become a, a doctor. He wanted to become a surgeon. And um, this incident that night, so the girl wakes up in the hospital. She has no recollection of anything the entire evening at all. I mean, just nothing. She has, she hears testimony. So the school or the, so they contacted the authorities and these, this young man was charged with these very serious crimes. So he dropped out of Stanford in January of 2015. I believe he dropped out before they had the chance to ask him to leave, but he dropped out. And so the case actually went to trial this year and um, he was found guilty of those three felonies, which to be precise, did not involve rape. They involved, but they, the girl was obviously, you know, embarrassed and was apparently out in public, very exposed and, and had no recollection at all. And so the um, judge uh, in the case that, so the jury came back with three guilty verdicts. The prosecutor was asking for 14 years or no, it was a 14 year maximum sentence. The prosecutor was asking for six. The judge sentenced this young man to just six months in in jail and then community service. And he has to register as a sex offender. So, you know, to start with, before I make my legal and social points, it's just a devastating, heartbreaking incident for both for everyone involved. I mean, for this young, this young woman who was, I think she's 23 now. I mean, just a, you know, embarrassing, humiliating and horrible thing. She had to go through testifying at the trial. Um, the young man who's, you know, came from a family who loved him and encouraged him to swim and, and be an expert athlete. And as a mom of an, a division one athlete, I can tell you all you do is work out. That's you live your life playing your sport. And so, uh, those parents are devastated. And this young man, you know, now his swimming career is over. His potential to be a doctor. He's, I don't, I don't know if he's in school now, but, the case raises some issues I think are really important to talk about in America, and that is this. There has been a lot of complaint among liberal activist groups that the judge did not fairly sentence this young man, that he should have gotten longer time. And, you know, there were letters written, very poignant, long letters written by the young man's mother, the young man's father, the, the girl, the, the young woman, the victim, um, and family members of this young man who was accused. And you start to see a picture emerge that really you start to think that not just a young man should have been a defendant in this case, but there should have been other people or other things really that gave rise to this. One is the hookup culture. And, you know, we hear the American left talking about just expanding um, or loosening of sexual mores. And so somehow we're advancing as a society if we have looser and looser or, or just non-existent sexual mores. And we have that the only moral value attached or relevant in any way to intimacy is consent. As long as just consent, who cares? Who cares how many people? Who cares your status? Who cares? Well, nothing else matters as long as there's consent. So we have a really loosening moral standard on campuses 
And the particular issue about this um, hookup culture is how does a young man who's extremely inebriated, who's talking with a young woman who's extremely inebriated, who she, as I keep saying, could not recall anything about the whole evening. How do you assess whether he thought he had consent, whether she gave consent in some way she doesn't recall, and even with respect to her having ultimately passed, she was unconscious when she was finally located, but we don't know when she became unconscious. I mean, there was no testimony that he physically carried her out of the party or dragged her out of the party. She apparently left on her own two feet with him, left the party, and went off by themselves out into the open in Stanford campus. And so I think, first of all, that there's a willingness to attack the ju- I want to hit several points. There's a willingness to attack the judiciary and that there, this judge is now getting death threats because he didn't sentence this young man to long enough time. But if you sit back and you're the judge and you realize that, you know, the jury has did their job. Now your job as a judge is to determine the correct sentence. How does that judge know if the girl has no memory of the incident, whether or not she gave consent? And that's a huge when she can't recall the incident, he can. and, And he claims that he was less drunk than she was. He claims she did consent to everything they did. This intimacy they engaged in, which did not involve um, intercourse. It just involved other activity of an intimate nature. But he claims she did. The jury didn't believe him. That's that's life. And the jury makes her decision. But this judge is trying to balance um, a case with such very, very difficult facts. And the notion that that the what is being alleged by these people uh, threatening the judge is this is a case of white privilege. You would be totally different if this guy wasn't such a rich white kid. This young man wasn't such a rich white kid who was the uh, defendant. And he actually wasn't. As you read the story, he wasn't. A, it wasn't a wealthy family. It was a family that gave their all to their kids and encouraged them. They got them living in a neighborhood with good public schools and encouraged a kid to, to do well. And he did. But it was it's a it's a false raising of the issue of, of white privilege. And then there's also this rape culture allegation about college campuses where, you know, the notion of anything later, anything occurs between adults, adult students, you know, men and women who are students. And the woman later says, I didn't like it. I didn't mean to. I want." We've talked about these kind of cases many times in this show, but it's a very difficult thing when it's people who were voluntarily getting together and hanging around together. And, and, and as she calls it, I think she's the one that called it slobber kissing at the party. And so, you know, where, where do you draw the line and say, did she really, you know, was it really consent? And so for the judge to say, I have to weigh in all the facts in my sentencing, it doesn't mean he was sympathetic to the young man because he was lost his swimming career. It may have meant just, I just don't, um, I can't get comfortable knowing that he formed the consent to actually commit a a forcible act. And then, you know, there are many, many players weighing in on all this. But, you know, the real people who should have been defendants, not people, but this this concept of the hookup culture, this kind of, um, you know, gratification with no consequence, friends with benefits kind of stuff. It leads to all sorts of confusion between men and women. And, you know, when you don't when you're just in the hookup culture mode. You're not, I mean, you're engaged in whatever you're engaged in, and there's no expectation of you're going to date me again, we're going to be going steady, we're going to get engaged. It's just a thing you do when you move on. And so for a young man 
to think that she was consenting is, is not that crazy a thing. How are you supposed to know as a young man unless she really says no firmly and absolutely? So I think this, you know, we had a, uh, we had a, a attempt in this case to sound like uh, the young man just got a raw deal. And I just think there's much more to it about it's a it's a need for American culture to re-embrace the importance of talking about intimacy as a meaningful thing that belongs in a marriage and a committed relationship. And we don't say that anymore because of the power of political correctness that tells us we ought to just shut up. Okay, so that's the Stanford rape case. We may talk about a little more again after the break. Coming up after the break, we have very shortly in the second hour, uh, Lisa Luby Ryan is joining us to talk about um, the impact of pro-choice uh, world and a whole bunch of other good stuff. So don't go away. We'll be back after the break. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Addis. This is Ladies Can We Talk. And my leading ladies who join me tonight are Mari Sullivan and Lori Medina. I also have in studio a woman who's actually a very good friend of mine, Lisa Luby Ryan. And she's also a prominent national spokesperson on the subject, really, of the impact of the pro-choice movement on women. And the reason I wanted to talk to her, among many reasons, but uh, tonight was... This past Friday in Washington, D.C., Hillary Clinton um, had a big speech when she stood on the stage with the president of the Planned Parenthood organization and, you know, locked arms and put their arms up together, rah, rah. And basically, Hillary Clinton is thinking she's going to bring the woman's vote to her in part by being a strong advocate on the pro-choice uh, and the selection of judges of the Supreme Court and just standing essentially with the uh, strong pro-choice position of the Democrat Party, which is essentially, you know, abortion on demand at any time up until the moment of, of delivery. So she, it's, a, it's a very radical position she takes. And Lisa Luby Ryan is just an amazing speaker on this subject. Every time we talk about it, I learn new things from her. So Lisa, first of all, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Debbie. What a pleasure to be here. Glad you're here. And I'd love to just go ahead and launch. Tell us why it is you and and what it is you argue about the pro-choice movement not being really as helpful to women as Hillary tries to claim. You know, Debbie, it's interesting because Hillary and the far left or the left in general want women to believe that they're standing up for them and that they are going to protect them. And this is their right to choose. It's their body and they're right, and it's their decision. Well, you know what? It isn't a right. It's a choice these women make. And most of the women that make these choices regret these choices. You know, the left and Hillary and all of that by saying, it's okay, abortion is legal, it won't hurt you, it's immediate gratification, it will solve all your problems that you've got yourself into, they never tell you, the consequence of that choice. You know, they will never tell you that your life has changed forever. They will never tell you when you make that choice that you will see the world through broken glasses. They don't want you to know that part. They want you to to stand up and say, I'm going to protect you because this is your right and no one can take it from us. You know, you've made that point before, and I was actually starting to write that down, that immediate gratification idea is if you're especially a young woman and maybe single and frightened and don't want to tell your parents or your situation is that immediate gratification says, well, just solve it all, make it go away. And you said so many times they don't really tell you the long-term impact, and you alluded a little bit to it, Lisa, but so what are the long-term impacts on women that we don't really hear about? Well, this is what's very interesting, and they will tell you, is that when you choose abortion, the gratification is immediate. 
but the consequence is forever. And it's forever. You will, like I said earlier, you'll see the world through broken glasses. You can no longer have relationships. You are so full of guilt and shame. You are so full of um, um, just embarrassment. You know, we all want to be a mom. You know, every woman in this world has asked for a particular baby doll. We all through our life have wanted a doll. We are born to nurture. And when we all dream of being a mom, most of us dream of a lot of us of being a mom like we had. A lot of us dreamed about being a different kind of mom. A better mom, maybe. A better mom. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But when you find yourself in a situation, 50% of pregnancies in America are unwanted pregnancies. That's, That's a staggering number. Staggering number. Staggering. And when you find yourself in that situation, the world will tell you, go have an abortion. You know, 35% of the women in America have an abortion because it's in their, a child would be in their way to progress professionally. They can't afford it or, the, you know, they don't want the responsibility of it. But what they don't tell you, like I said, that gratification is immediate, but their life is ruined forever. But when they choose to have that child, whether they ever intended to be in this situation or not, the consequences are now, okay, so I can't afford it and I'm not going to be able to go buy the best shoes I've had, that I've been used to doing or go to college to tomorrow, college. Yeah. Yeah, drop out of college, or I'm going to be embarrassed when I show up at high school. But the consequences are eternal. That child will bring a family together. That child will give a mother purpose that she never had. And that's what is staggering to me is that most people don't understand that. You know, I've done a lot of research and talked to many women in Alveda King and Leslie Unruh and different people across the country. There's not a hard number, but the estimate is that 75 to 80 percent of women in American prisons are as a result of abortion. In American prisons? Prisons. And, and you're not saying, I mean, it's not the abortion that got them there, but it messed up their life and caused the behavior that it got them there. It is the guilt and shame of that abortion that turns them to drugs, which therefore turns them to prostitution, to stealing, to, you know, domestic abuse, child abuse, whatever. But it all comes back to that separation, you know, sin, separation from God that causes us to do things that we would not do otherwise. Yeah, you know, um, we've talked about this issue many times. Lisa and I have those two paths I want to go, and we have four minutes here. One is that this issue is not going to be solved. This, you know, We have the Roe versus Wade decision, and that's what it is, and who knows that will ever be overturned. So we really can't have politicians solve the, the abortion. And I, I think of it as a crisis. The number of abortions in America is simply staggering. So... The abortion crisis is overwhelming. Politicians can't solve it. It's got to be people solving it. People, Debbie, have to solve it. And it's amazing because the tide has turned on that. Since President Obama was elected, more people are pro-choice while people who were, you know, no, more people are pro-life, sorry, than pro-choice. And the tide has turned. But what we can have, you know, I feel this is a moral church issues. But the church has thrown it to the government 
for the government to solve it because they don't want to deal with it in their churches. But the importance of our campaign is, and I'd love to come back to this after the break, Donald Trump can't solve it, but he can give the churches the freedom to be able to teach it and preach it from the pulpit and not fear being attacked by the government or sued or shut down or lose their IRS or lose their IRS status or whatever. I love that. You know, there's a lot. I, I love that idea. And it really is true that this whole question of pro-choice and pro-life, the impact really in society isn't coming because politicians say the smartest thing is because, and, and Lisa has been involved with different um, pregnancy resource centers Active citizens, churches, uh, foundations, just citizens who care do so much to send the message to a young woman in a crisis, frightening pregnancy. We can do something better here because the easy answer has got to seem like just go take care of it. And the left says it'll all be fine. But I love how the outpouring of people is just is offering options to young women and trying to reach out and find them in these crisis crises. There, there are lots of options for people today, Debbie. You know, um, We'll come to my story in a minute, but um, how much time do we have? Do we have time? One minute and 45 seconds. Okay. You want to tell your story? Go ahead. Well, just real <laughs> quick, you know, why I'm so passionate about this and so many people know my story um, is that I have three amazing children waiting in heaven for me one day that I look forward to meeting. And um, that's why I'm so passionate about it because when I was one of these statistics of young women in a situation that I never thought I'd be in. You know, a young girl in high school, a young woman with two children, twice. and But the guilt and shame that I carried from the first one, you know, could not, just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And so I'm so passionate about sharing the truth because people don't understand the consequences of it. And I did not know, you know, 30 years ago, they didn't have the resources that they did today. And I just believe in um, setting these women free and giving them the options because there are so many options through pregnancy resource centers and online and 800 numbers because it's during the midst of the night and the wee hours of the night when you're alone and you realize how big the situation is where you need help. And there is a lot of help today that there wasn't when I was going through it. Yeah. You know, one, one thought I had about that is I, I love that you're sharing that there just is not as ramification free as the left tries to say. But it's also true that as I've listened and gotten to know you over the years and listened to your speeches and, and you're thinking it's not really that you have to. I mean, you still carry, I guess, whatever you call it, guilt or shame, but you can find freedom from that. You can find you can grow past it and find I mean, your work now. It is it doesn't change the past. But now we have exactly eight seconds. We're going to have to do this after the break. So we're going to talk a little more about what, how much Hillary is going to get support in this campaign by being ardently pro-choice. And then trying to really whether Don Trump is turning the corner and speaking better about some issues he's got to be talking about. So come back after the break. This is Debbie Georges and ladies, can we talk? And 
Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. I'm so glad you've tuned in this evening, this stormy evening in Dallas. Um, and, you know, we were talking, we have a guest in studio tonight. Uh, first, I have my leading ladies here, Murray Sullivan and Lori Medina, and a guest in studio, studio with us, Lisa Luby Ryan. We were talking about how Hillary is trying to make, Hillary Clinton's trying to make a lot of hay out of the fact that she thinks she will bring the woman's vote to her because of her strong position on being pro-choice and how she's going to protect the right to abortion for women. And and so what we were talking about was, you know, you can have the endless battle between people who say life begins at conception and others say, no, you can't prove that. So leaving aside those battles, just deal with facts. And we're the conservatives, so we actually care about facts. What are the outcomes from abortion? And I just had... Two quick studies, and I'll tell you, there have been a lot of stories in the news this week about Google hiding things, like you have to dig and dig to find conservative things. Well, I had to dig and dig to find this using Google, but there are numerous studies, numerous studies showing that abortion is linked to increased mental health problems. That it's not just consequence-free, as the left tries to show you, to claim. And then also another study showing there's a confirmed link between abortion and substance abuse. And Lisa was talking about that before the break, how that causes it, because of the link to substance abuse and other problems, it ends up causing problems in women's lives. There's a disproportionately high number of women in prison, of the women who are in prison who've had abortion. So I just, I, I think that... It's an odd, the oddest thing how the left just wants to say, you can't talk about that. We're only going to talk about, you know, um, the, the freedom of it. And this isn't a constitutional right. And that's that. But Lisa was talking before the break. And I want to let her finish on this point about how I don't want to leave the impression to anyone that you're somehow just hexed for life. If you've done this, if you've had an abortion, because there is just redemption, there, there's healing and you can move on. And so I'm not putting words in Lisa's mouth. I kind of am, but now I'm going to turn, let her put those words out, however she wants to say it. Well, you know, as you know, post-abortive woman, you do, you have to find because the anxiety, the panic, you know, I went through a divorce as a result of it. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a quick story. When I was running for office a few years ago, Debbie, we talked about that. And here it is. We, I, my story went on. I am second. And we tried not to get it on. I am second. Cause I was running for office and we were going to pull it off the air once we knew it was on the air. And a woman called me the next day and it was turned out that it was a past client of mine. And I didn't recognize the number. And she called and she goes, Oh my gosh, Lisa, I had no idea. She said last night, two o'clock during the morning, I was so deep and so depressed. She goes, you do not know that my husband and my three children have left me. She said, I was crazy. I couldn't do life. I couldn't exist. This is a very prominent woman whose husband was a pro athlete and so forth. She said, at two o'clock in the morning, I saw your testimony on I Am Second. And I saw that, that God's grace and redemption, and mercy, and forgiveness that you had chosen to receive, that through that, she said, I realized why I was crazy. She said, no one ever knew about my abortion, not even my husband. She said, I realized that that was the root of my problem. And she said, I called my husband at 2.30 in the morning and said, can I come back home? I know why we're separated. And she is not, she's come to know the Lord. She is not the same person she is today. And it, it's, again, you know, when we talked about it earlier, you you 
are finally with a man that you love, you finally have children or you want children or you find, and then you find yourself in a situation in a, that you can't have this child or choose not to have this child. And you choose to have that child thinking everything's going to be okay and I can go about life. Well, you know, what the left doesn't tell you is you can't be, you can't become an unmother. You have experienced that experience and no one can take that away, but you have taken it away from you. It is your choice that you've made and it is forever with you and separates you in the destruction. And let me tell you something. It's not, it is about the child, but it is saving that mother. Because when you save that mother, whether they are with child or post-abortive like I am, I am a strong believer that if you save that mother, you save that child, you save a mother, you save a mother, you save a family, you save a family, you save a community, in turn you save a city and you save a nation. And that's how we're going to get our nation back, is we're going to start educating You know, I talked about earlier the tide turning of people becoming pro-life versus pro-choice. It's because when you put it in simple facts about a child, you know, a a toddler is different than a 12-year-old physically. You know, a 60-year-old man is different than a 14-year-old man, but they're still a human being. That's the same with an embryo or a child inside of you. And that's what people have to understand is that It is a child and children, you know, we love children. We love puppies. We love things. They bring life. But until we stop, you know, separate, taking these women and feeding them with lies and Hillary Clinton is lying to you as a woman, she is doing a detriment to you, a detriment to our nation. And if you fall for it, you, we've got to take our country back. And it's the women one by one by one that we can do this. You know, we were talking before the break uh, and actually in the last segment, too, about Hillary Clinton having given a speech in Washington and how she's it was really interesting. We never talked about, you know, she made a huge splash recently talking about she's the first woman presidential candidate and this is the biggest deal in the world and she's going to stand up for women. And I think this this pro-choice issue is going to, my sense is, it's going to fall flat for her. I don't think that there is a, just a, uh, an outpouring of demand among American women of really of any age, but maybe you guys feel differently. Is this going to help her with the women's vote, Lori or Mari or somebody over there? Well, I think that uh, there's a no-brainer in our country that a woman could be president. She happens to be eminently corrupt, and the, 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 the you know, Obama just, acknowledged the White House that she is under criminal investigation, not just for misusing the server, but also for, uh, you know, uh, the Clinton Foundation money bank she had going in the State Department. But here's my point. If she really cared about women, she would let Planned Parenthood have these young women have a sonogram. They would do things that would say, "Now, now, here you go. You have the right under Roe v. Raid to have an abortion. Let's think about it. But, oh, no. You cannot do that. That's actually a great point. Why, if it's all this respect for women, why is the left so quickly to say, don't think about it, no no waiting period. They oppose bills that say, take a waiting period, think about this. It's really not pro-choice. It's really pro-abortion and the mindset of the American left. Well, it's pro-death. I mean, I, that's mm-hmm. really what it is, is pro-death. 
And I, I guess what I, I can't wrap my head around and don't understand how uh, so many minorities uh, automatically vote Democrat no matter what because that's what they're told and that's what they're told their fathers or grandfathers or grandmothers, whatever, what they did. And, you know, and here I feel like the abortion community directly attacks the minority community. And I feel like it's the minority community that's being attacked, and and they're the ones that are being targeted, killing their babies. And to me, this is a direct connection to Margaret Sanger, the the founder of Planned Parenthood. But the, you know, the question is, sorry, it's a long question. The question is, why do the minorities? Why do they believe it? Why do they think it's okay? Why do they listen to the Democrats? That's my question for you. <laughs> that's a great question. And you know what? I don't know why, but I do know this: <clears throat> that Planned Parenthood. has set up more than 80% of their facilities in minority neighborhoods. Black women account for 37% of the abortions. And yet they are probably the most nurturing, Mm -hmm. loving, family-oriented culture culture Mm -hmm. that we know. And, And that's what's, you know, hard for me to wrap my brain around. But And I have to tell you, it keeps them stuck it keeps them, you know, from moving forward. From progressing. We have about 30 seconds left here. We have Lisa Luby Ryan in studio tonight with us, along with my leading ladies, Lori Medina and Mari Sullivan. We've been talking about the pro-choice movement, and I'm really glad we're having this discussion because we hear a lot from, especially, even it seems like women on the conservative side, don't talk about the social issues, just talk taxes, just talk immigration, just talk, and these issues are, these are the heart and soul issues that keep you awake at night, and Lori mentioned, and I want to say, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, acknowledged the reason she founded it was because she wanted to be sure to kill as many minority babies as possible. She wanted to stop the growth of the black community in America. This is your Planned Parenthood. And Margaret Sanger is someone who has Hillary Clinton has praised. Hey, after the break, we got to hit Donald Trump, the Mexican uh, uh, judge, and the wise Latina's response. So don't go away. Right back after the break. And welcome back to the home stretch of Ladies Can We Talk. Before we get off on the 17 things you want to hit in the next 11 minutes, I do want to take one moment to thank the sponsor for this show. Ladies Can We Talk simply could not be in the air without our very generous sponsor, GC Works. GC Works is a Dallas-based company. They perform research in advanced technology. And they deliver innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. We are so grateful for GC Works sponsoring the show. Okay, so I got I can't stand this story. I just been wanting I've been waiting the whole show to get to it to talk about this idea that Donald Trump got piled on by the media. I sit at my desk at home and I have it, CNN or Fox on all the time. I mean, hours in a row uh, interviewing everybody, like the janitor who walked by in the hall got interviewed to talk about. You know, don't you think it's terrible? Donald Trump made a reference to the uh, Mexican ethnicity of the judge and. Honestly, I was disappointed in many GOP leaders who said as soon as they heard the charge of racism being made against Donald Trump, start wringing their hands and, oh, my gosh, yes, I was so offended. It was awful. It was awful. They were just, it's embarrassing. And I'm just going to say this, because I'm, I'm a lawyer by background, and I've been around a lot of judges. I'm going to tell you, judges are just people. That's right. They do not lose their life story, their experiences, their impressions, because they put on the black robe of a judge, they're still a person, which is what 
Justice, Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor was saying when she said, I would hope that a wise Latino woman with the richness of her experiences would more often than not reach a better conclusion than a white male who hasn't lived that life. She made many comments like that. She tried to walk him back. That was actually, that statement was before she was on the court. But she's saying the same thing Trump is saying. Your life experiences shape how you see things. She's trying to say it adds richness. He's trying to say, I wonder if this judge is biased. Yeah, it's naive to think that judges aren't human beings. And Trump isn't just saying that the man is of Mexican heritage. He's also talking about his political ideology. He's an Obama appointee. He has, you know, contributed to the Dem Party. Uh, he is in a lawyer's group that is an active Latino organization. Trump has gotten many rulings that he just cannot understand. Why isn't this judge going for a summary judgment? There's no case here. Now, that's Donald's opinion. He also has a right to believe in his own mind that this judge is biased because he's got a right to a fair trial. And if he thinks the judge is biased, he can lay it out. And that's what he's trying to do and let the voters decide. Don't shut him down and call him a racist. You know, I... Uh, when you told me this week we were going to talk about this, Debbie, my first thing I said to you was um, I wish people would use the same ruler when they are judging matters. And the point is, is they don't. Is they use one ruler for Trump. They use another ruler for, uh, you know, ladies like Sotomayor on the Supreme Court uh, where she's able to say that and applaud it, quite frankly, for saying, you know, talking about a wise Latina is so much greater. Um so you know, it's just it's just the hypocrisy that occurs. And if we could judge everybody the same, I think we'd be a lot better off uh, than than making uh, different judgments for different people. On a related point to that, you know, in this election cycle, now that it appears Donald Trump, I think he will get the nomination. I didn't really answer my own question, my rapid fire question earlier. I think he'll be our nominee. I think it would be disastrous for the GOP to pull a stunt at the convention. But you know, who knows? But Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. And now that he will be, the media, including CNN and many people in the GOP establishment in Washington are more comfortable with Hillary Clinton than they would be with Donald Trump. And so we're going to hear every time Donald Trump's shoelaces don't match, we'll have to hear about it on national news. It'll be a three-day discussion and, and whining and moaning and hand-wringing. And so we've got to have on a better filter than just, oh, my gosh, he said something racist. And the left knows if you just say the word racist, everyone jumps back and, oh, I don't want to be called that. I'm going to shut up. But you know how, okay, so so Trump said what he said. And then Paul Ryan said something to the effect of this is the definition of racism. Remember in that tweet? Yes. Paul Ryan said that. Yes, well, he did. But, but see, what Trump has done is he has given Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell a pass, right? Because yes, he's he already told them that they've got their jobs. So don't you think that they now feel like they can say and do whatever they think, cater to whatever silly Washington? Wait, wait. How, how do you mean that? Because he didn't get after him? Because he didn't counter them? Because Trump didn't get after him? Well, no, but no, I mean, it doesn't matter. He's got his job. Paul, Paul Ryan has his job. So it doesn't matter even if, if Trump does go after him. He has his job. So he can say whatever he wants. He can criticize Trump very freely now as he chooses because it's with his little in crowd in Washington. He wants okay. to remain cool with them uh, and with the media. So so they've got a pass. So the criticism of Trump will continue, ladies. I will tell you that right now. And I'm not 
think for me, <laughs> I mean, maybe for me, but, um, <laughs> we also feel like it. <laughs> but it, it's definitely going to happen. Continue from the GOP elite because nothing's going to Trump. He originally said he was going to bust things up in Washington, but then he, now he's made statements recently saying that they, they can all keep their jobs. So I, I just, I think it was a mistake on his part. He should have made them think that they're on the fence. Well, I do think <laughs> yes. that people are going to respect Trump for standing up for his constitutional right to a fair trial and also being in the face of people that just say because he is Donald Trump, he is a racist. When are we going to stop falling at uh, our feet and not standing up for here's the big picture. Here are the facts. Did you know this? No, I'm not a racist. I'm the farthest thing from a racist. I'm here. He talks to all Americans and that is hitting a very powerful chord out in the country. He doesn't balkanize Americans like Hillary Clinton. And I do not believe that Donald Trump is a racist. And these people that just fell in the line with the media and Hillary, they're losing. That's why we have Donald Trump as a candidate, because he stands up and says, we've got to stop this. We've got real problems. Let's get the facts. Let's fix things. You know what else? All these prissy people in the media who just said, oh my gosh, he commented on Curiel, but he called him Mexican. He's actually Mexican-American and he's only Mexican heritage and, and fussing and moaning. I'm telling you, the broad masses of people who show up at Trump rallies, the millions who voted for him, they do not have a hard time connecting the dots. When you say, Trump says, I'm going to build a wall we're going to around the Mexican border. We're not going to have this uncontrolled border. People have no problem connecting. Okay, Trump said he wants a wall, and this guy is of Mexican American descent. People don't have to have you draw them a diagram to explain why somebody might wonder if the judge were biased. And this is actually a huge problem in in litigation of all kinds because the the laws and standards that requ- requires a judge to recuse himself or herself are very narrow. They don't, you know, you don't find out and dig in. Well, what did you used to think about this in second grade? I mean, they don't dive into that. They just kind of think, do you have a financial interest? Do you have an ownership interest? And, and short of that, you don't really recuse yourself. But it is a very real thing. And I can tell you, people, people forum shop for judges. I mean, plaintiffs do especially. Try, they know there's a judge much more sympathetic to the women's issues, much more sympathetic to women who are discriminated against, much more sympathetic. And they look for those judges. And so everyone, including the left leftist people who are getting all hysterical now, understand that judges are human and they bring their life experience to the bench. Yeah, we're Okay, I was just going to say this one other thing. You know, there's going to be a drip, drip, drip on the Trump case. And the Democrats and Hillary and the media are going to want to portray Trump very negatively as a con man and as a fraudster. This man has every right to stand up and say, well, wait just a minute. There is a biased judge in this case. I'm not any of those things. But they're trying to take that right away from him. And he's standing up and he's standing firm. And I applaud him for that. Yeah, especially as we were talking about one of the breaks here. You know, he does this knowing that everybody attacks him all the time. I mean, Trump is smart enough to know once he said that, that the media would pile on. that He could not have not figured that out. He just says, anyway, my fond wish is he would find a more articulate way to say a lot of things he says. Because I think a lot of times his gut instinct is right. He de- he's like got a good read on things and, and the kind of the average Joe person goes, yeah, I think he's right. It wouldn't kill him. And I think he is trying. He stepped up recently uh, and gave a very good speech in Washington last Friday. And I want to call all of your attention to Donald Trump is giving a speech this coming Monday night. And he's going to be talking about his 
perception about Hillary Clinton, her corruption, the Clinton Foundation, the Benghazi, uh, uh, the email scandals. I mean, he's really going to lay out an attack on Hillary that I think is not going to be is going to be much of much higher caliber, substance, bullet pointed details than just he's not going to go off on she's an idiot. Uh, I think it'll be much more substantive. And I think that, you know, it's fair game at this time. We are we're almost out of time. and I, I want to tell our listeners um, some a couple of things of exciting news. Actually, before I do that, I want to acknowledge Flag Day. Flag Day is two days from today. And you know when you saw the protesters against Donald Trump waving the Mexican flag and you hear some left is saying, well, why shouldn't they? That's their flag. They love their flag. Flags are actually a various, very serious symbol. They are meaningful. They stand for a country. It's why the ISIS flag is feared. It's why America's flag is welcomed in danger zones around the world. America's flag stands for the ideas behind America, not the geography, the ideas behind America. And Flag Day was in America entirely to support the idea of reverence for the ideas behind America's founding. So put your flag out on Flag Day. I keep my flags out actually from Memorial Day to Labor Day. There's always a good holiday in there. But Flag Day is important. It's a day to say this this flag matters. America matters. Well, we're going to wrap up the show in about a minute and a half. Here. I want to tell you some first exciting news that in the course of doing this show for the last year and a half and writing my book, which is called Ladies Can We Talk, I had repeated input from many people that we should change the name of the book and the show to America, can we talk? In fact, Rafael Cruz, the dad of Ted Cruz, who translated my book into Spanish for me, says the one thing he did not like about my book was the title. So this show is changing the na- its name starting on the July 3rd show to be America, can we talk? And we're kind of doing it to say the show is for everyone, for listeners, and with that just really kind of matches the content of the show better because we talk about all sorts of issues facing America. I want to thank Neil West, who is... I can't believe he's turning the music up again. Stop that. I'm just kidding. He's turning the music up even though I still have 30 seconds. I want to thank our guest tonight very, very much. I want to thank Virginia Prodan, Lisa Luby-Ryan, Leading Ladies, Mari Sullivan, Lori Medina. Also, follow us on Twitter at Debbie Can We Talk. Check out our Facebook page, Ladies Can We Talk. We have great discussions and lots of people weigh in who don't agree on politics, so it's lots of fun to go there. And I just thank you each week for tuning in to Ladies Can We Talk. We're, we're all about reclaiming the identity of America, embracing America's exceptional nature. And as I say every week, we talk truth about America. Come back next week. Talk to you then. Talk to you then.